This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, May 17th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, commissioner applicants share their vision for San Miguel County. Town strategizes upcoming budget needs. Mountain Village begins emergency work on Gondola Slope. And the mountain weather forecast. Before the day is out, the San Miguel County Democrats will have chosen a new county commissioner to fill the seat left vacant by Hillary Cooper. Cooper recently stepped down to take a role in Governor Jared Polis's administration. On Tuesday, the local Democratic Party hosted a candidate forum to hear from the five applicants vying for the seat. The applicants are Anne Brown, Kevin Jones, Doug Sanders, Robert Weatherford, and Delaney Young. The purpose of tonight's forum is to get to know the applicants. That's Eleni Constantine, chair of the San Miguel County Democrats. We're seeking to learn about who the person will be as a leader and a decision maker, hear about their preparedness for the position, learn how the person collaborates and works with others, supports staff, coordinates with other elected officials, thinks broadly about the county, represents all sections of the community, and represents San Miguel County outside of the county. The forum began with each applicant sharing why they're excited about the position of county commissioner and what led them to throw their name in the ring. Robert Weatherford spoke first, saying housing was his primary reason for applying. I just think the whole survival of our community completely depends on the housing issue. Um, And I feel like to tackle that now, you know, everybody's work Uh, leads to the next person's work. So, you know, we never get it perfect. We never get it figured all out. But we do have to keep working and adding to the work that's been done before. So that's why I'm interested is I think there's a great challenge. Delaney Young says for her, it comes from a sense of wanting to take care of the community. My grandmother always volunteered at the hospital and I would go with her and be a candy striper, as we called it in those days with my grandmother. And the why right now is... Uh, this position became available much sooner than I thought it might. And I've also learned that at my age, I need to strike while the iron is hot. And I thought I should take this opportunity while it presented itself to me. And it's exciting to me because I refer to myself basically as a government nerd. I really just love government and I love democracy and I think this would be a great honor to be able to hold this position. And Brown notes she's excited to serve after seeing how the county government works. Yeah, I've been in a lot a lot involved in a lot of nonprofits and a couple of um, county boards, um, but never as an elected person. Um, I started working for San Miguel County Public Health during COVID and Um, There was has been so much press about how awful our government is. And when I got inside it, I just had did not have that experience. I had a completely opposite experience. I was overwhelmed by how hard our people were working, um, how smart they were, how much they cared. And I just had a completely different perspective. Kevin Jones says applying for the position was a no brainer. I'm a bit analytical. Uh, I like to think and talk and do a lot of due diligence. Um, but when this came up, I honestly pulled up my computer, wrote the letter of interest and submitted it. So it was a, an opportunity to to jump in and be involved, uh, not sit on the periphery anymore. 
not um you know kind of try to cajole and, and 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 nudge people along but to actually get my hands dirty and help finally doug sanders says he wants to represent the workers of the region i'm a worker bee uh, you know I've, I've not held government positions i have not worked with the government um i moved here 25 years ago and became a land surveyor and a ski instructor and my perspective is from those people that work every day, you know, eight to eight, 12 hours a day, making the wheels turn every day. And when we have those discussions and, and, and how what we see happening every day doesn't always translate up to the government. And I think we need to communicate on a transparent level and get all facets of our community on board and, and use all those tools to better ourselves. Questions from moderators covered housing, including Diamond Ridge, important issues to the community outside of housing, leadership and communication styles, and how to engage the community and local government. At the end of the forum, each candidate was given the opportunity to answer one question that didn't get asked. Sanders asks what other housing solutions are out there. I think we need to look more heavily into public-private partnerships. I think as a county, we really have a lot of power here. Weatherford shared what he believes makes the region special. You know, we're all here because it is uh, spectacularly beautiful. But I think the key is that it's a self-selecting group that thinks that that's important. And I think there's something we cherish in our community here that is the real magic. Young asked and answered the question of what will happen with Telluride Town Council if she steps down as mayor. I have had no negative comments. People have expressed that they are sad to see me go if I leave. However, we have an amazing team at the town. We have an amazing council at the town that I believe works very well together. And everyone has said that they feel confident that Even in my absence, things would go very smoothly, and they wished me the best of luck. Brown asks the carrying capacity of San Miguel County. In my opinion, we have essentially reached the carrying capacity of of San Miguel County. And we see that because we already can't house our workforce. We our roads are beat up. We have traffic at the intersections. We have lines of cars going up and down Highway 145 during commuting hour. We have lines at the gondola. We have lines on the ski mountain. We can't place a cell phone call at Christmas. The wastewater treatment plant is backing up. I mean, we are there. So, um, though the medical center busting at the seams. So, I mean, we are, we've, we've reached it. And, um, you know, I think our economy is very strong right now. Investments need to be made in supporting our current population and our current um, development rather than more. In conclusion, Joan asks why the county has no programs to incentivize affordable housing. Ideas like discounting permit fees, um, flexible, more flexible zoning or parking um, questions, you know, things that, that, that doesn't have anything to do with cash. Right? That's not the, com- the county writing checks so that we have this full menu of options uh, of developing affordable housing, restricted housing. The Vacancy Committee will meet at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, May 17th, to vote on the individual to fill the open seat on the San Miguel Board of County Commissioners. Tune in to KOTO News on Thursday to hear the results of the vote.
When it comes to town infrastructure projects in critical need of funding, town manager Scott Robson says it all begins with wastewater. Um, those infrastructure needs really are primarily related to our wastewater treatment plant, both expansion and uh, upgrade. But wait, there's more. Street paving, sidewalks and accessibility ramps and so on. Bridge replacement at Mahoney Small River Trail Bridges in need of replacement. EV infrastructure build out, a new rental housing maintenance building. Uh, we've talked uh, at length around Virginia Placer 2, uh, Rebecca Hall, uh, remodel and expansion, Marshall's building, remodel and expansion, and uh, certainly Town Hall. We have uh, some work to be done out at our public works campus, uh, our museum, and a roundabout. That list comes from a work session at Town Council last week in which Robson presented the town's upcoming needs and critical projects. Taken together, these projects come with a big price tag. Uh, just rough numbers. You can get to uh, $80 million very quickly. Uh, again, that's not a number we're looking to go out to the community on, but um, but that's uh, that's a very short list of uh, kind of deferred needs out there from an infrastructure and a facility standpoint that we really want to continue to refine our game plan on. As Robson notes, Town Council is not planning to ask voters to fund those projects all at once. But facing so many capital needs, it's important to start opening up funding options. Robson says the challenge comes from meeting budget needs without putting excess burden on taxpayers. We would love to look at tools where we can um, find some of that revenue uh, a little more quickly um, and, uh, again, not try to, uh, to raise taxes right now. But at the same time, uh, we know there are some uh, long uh long-needed infrastructure needs out there, uh, again, particularly the wastewater treatment plant, that are going to need some some uh, specific funding sources out in front of us here, whether it's this fall or uh, in uh, a future fall. One potential revenue source comes from the open space budget. Paying off of the valley floor debt will free up some $3 million a year moving forward. Other revenue sources might come from borrowing money. Financial advisors to the town joined the meeting to lay out those borrowing options, different ones which range from certificates of participation, or COPs, to revenue bonds, to general obligation bonds, and so on, are complex. Each comes with their own benefits and drawbacks, and many would require raising a new tax and asking for approval from voters. Mayor Delaney Young says if they plan to get something on the ballot this fall, it's time to get moving. If we do want to get something on the ballot that needs to start um, coming to fruition rather soon. As a next step, Robson notes council should identify the highest priority projects. Certainly the wastewater treatment plant is a, is a, is a have to and a need to, if you will. But I think at the staff level, we are curious on um, some of the other elements of this, this list, what feels most compelling and, and critical to, to council. Um, certainly we'll be um, looked to ask similar questions of the public, but are there elements of, of this list that feel like maybe not as critical as others, or is this starting to gel together as a, as a package that feels pretty compelling to, to council? Not included on the list, nor in the $80 million price tag, are the gondola replacement project and the lot L development and parking garage at Shandoka. Robson says those projects are so substantial they should be considered all on their own. Moving forward, town will consider its priorities and a potential ballot measure this fall.
Gondola staff are beginning emergency work to address slope instability around the gondola in Mountain Village. According to Catherine Warren, Mountain Village Public Information Officer, gondola staff observed a piece of the hill slope cracking around the gondola station in the village center. Just to the north of the gondola station, that where you leave Mountain Village and head up to San Sofia and ultimately down to Telluride. Warren says when staff came in on Monday, they noticed a cut into the hillside that could potentially slide soil into the gondola path. Geotechnical engineers who've already worked with this property in the past came at on a very short notice and has you know begun to assess the issue and then created a mitigation plan that we will begin this week ASAP today, May 17th. Engineers determined the instability is due to subsurface soil movement on top of bedrock. With warming temperatures, melting snow, and rain, the soil started to shift. The impacted area is currently 2,500 square feet with an average depth of 5 feet. It was put up there after the construction of the gondola station. And there's also a cement remediation wall for further hillside support. Um, And so... Truly, the the plan as it stands now, and this might change as they start digging in there, is to remove the slope and this the remove the dirt that has begun to move to prevent it from moving further. Because the concern is it will slide into the gondola, um, the line, the path that the gondola cars move up the mountain, and that would be unsafe for our passengers. Crews will remove the soil to avoid it sliding into the gondola's path. The project will take place on private property, and the town asks the community to avoid the area. Mountain Village will provide further details as they're available. Updates will be posted on social media and at bit.ly slash updates. Work began on Wednesday, May 17th. Mountain Village hopes to have the gondola open for its scheduled May 25th date. If your spring cleaning has unearthed a trove of outdoor gear you no longer need, the Telluride Mountain Club can take it off your hands. The club is holding a used outdoor gear drive on May 19th and 20th at the Carhenge parking lot from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. both days. All donated gear will be redistributed back to the community for free at the Community Fiesta on Saturday, June 24th. Meanwhile, Telluride Mountain Club is hard at work clearing area trails of downed trees and brush. If hikers encounter damaged or impacted trails, TMC encourages them to reach out so the club can focus its cleanup. Hikers should expect muddy conditions throughout the spring runoff and stick to the trails even when they're wet so as not to erode or disturb surrounding habitat. The famed Galloping Goose stopped its galloping back in the 1950s when the gasoline-powered rail bus, part train, part automobile, was retired. In its heyday, the Galloping Geese carried freight, mail, passengers, and tourists between Telluride and surrounding mountain towns and was a marvel of regional engineering. 
Of course, even while operations stopped long ago, an antique galloping goose number four out of seven, to be precise, has migrated from the Ridgeway Railroad Museum to the county courthouse lawn in Telluride each summer, where it's been a popular tourist stop in the warmer months. This year, the need for stabilization and repairs will be keeping the antique goose in Ridgeway all summer long, and it will miss its annual flight to Telluride. The Telluride Fire Protection District owns the number four goose. While Telluride will miss the landmark this summer, Fire Chief John Bennett notes the recently discovered damage is substantial. He adds, quote, it will take a fair amount of time on the front end rebuild. The goose will return next summer, end quote. Off-highway vehicles such as ATVs and motorbikes have increased in popularity over the years. And in 2022, Colorado Parks and Wildlife raised over $6 million from the sale of roughly 200,000 OHV licenses. That money will now return to OHV users indirectly as it's being channeled into OHV trail projects across the state. The funding approved at CPW's May Commissioner meeting is being distributed in the form of grants to OHV trail organizations across the state including in Dolores, Rico, Ure, and other areas within our region. On Tuesday, the governor of Arizona announced the state would take action against fake rehab centers that have been targeting indigenous communities throughout the Rocky Mountain West, including the Navajo Nation and the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe in Colorado. In addition to defrauding the state out of millions in Medicaid payments, the centers have been coming onto tribal land and luring vulnerable people, sometimes with drug and alcohol, to these centers where they don't often get treatment and were subsequently stranded far from home. Community members have been raising the alarm about this for months, and on May 5th, victim advocates held a walk in downtown Phoenix calling for action. Rocky Mountain Community Radio's Maeve Conran spoke with Crystal Ashkey of KSUT Tribal Radio and Chris Clements of KSJD, who have been reporting on the issue. Crystal, let's start with you. How and when did you first become aware of this issue? I'm a Navajo Nation member, and it was kind of hard for me to believe. I've been part of, like, I'm part of social media. I saw this post by Kara Willetta, and she kind of, hey, there's people coming out to the Navajo Nation. We had to like call the cops on them. And it was like this whole kind of story. I was just like in disbelief because I grew up on the Navajo Nation. I know about the Navajo Nations. So I kept up with it. And then I found out finally when I really could get some solid source on it, which was the Navajo Nation police. There was a post put out by them last year. It was like, oh, wow, this is serious. Well, you spoke with Roland Dash, Sergeant Dash, who's with the Navajo Police Department. And as you said, they had put a warning out on their Facebook feed, warning people about these vans that were showing up in the communities. Right now, it's a constant thing of these guys showing up here and taking these individuals down. I made contact with uh, FBI on this whole thing. I made contact with my superiors on, on everything that's going on. I provided them with information. I made contact with CI, our criminal investigator here in Tuba City. Oh, wow, what's going on here? 
Well, Chris, I'd like to bring you in now because you've been reporting recently on this. There was a big day of action, a big rally that happened in Phoenix, Arizona on May 5th. How did you become involved in reporting on this and who have you spoken to? I I kind of found out about this issue because I'm on a lot of Facebook groups and um, I eventually joined one called Predatory Treatment Centers. And I think it was started by a victim's advocate named Reva Stewart and, and Colleen um, her her friend, both of them have had, you know, relatives who have gone missing as a result of this process. And they told me about folks who are being taken that are sort of in our area, Toyok, Colorado, at the in the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation and in all throughout Kayenta, Arizona and Red Mesa. Now we're finding out it's in Montana. It's in South Dakota. You know, we've got one from Nevada, California. And they're brought down here into the valley. And last count, we had over 3,000 homes that we, we've been able to, to find out about. What is the regulatory or what has been the regulatory framework that has facilitated this to even happen? Um, according to Riva, you know, these rehabs, these treatment centers, sober living homes, they started proliferating during the years of the pandemic because there was a sort of um, a policy at that point where if you wanted to start a home like this, this is all according to her, you could just call Access, um, which is Arizona's Medicaid program, and sort of get licensed that way. There are a number of unlicensed homes, I think, um, operating out there. That was sort of one way that they got started. And and I think it just in general, there was a large public health blind spot during the pandemic as a result of the lockdowns and quarantine. And that's kind of how it began. And now, according to Riva, these homes are getting paid through multiple different streams of like income. One of them is being registered as an Indian health provider under Access, which I think is its own payment. And then another is taking folks to intensive outpatient centers that are nearby for classes, and they get paid to do that, sort of kickbacks by the outpatient centers themselves, um, according to Riva. This process, it's kind of quite complicated. And, and I think even the FBI and people who are involved, everyone is all still figuring out exactly how it works. Well, Riva organized that rally that I said happened in Phoenix on May 5th. But She's also testified before the Arizona state legislature, and there has been some slight change there. Yes. So the kickbacks I mentioned from these IOPs, they're called, um, they aren't going to be as easy to come by now because Access has made a change to its policy that basically says that they will now pay less money than they previously were for folks who are being taken to IOPs that are under Access's um, American Indian Health Program. And so... Now that that change has been made, um, Riva told me she predicts that thousands of indigenous folks in the Phoenix area are going to be unhoused, um, kicked out essentially from these homes because they are no longer sort of bringing in the the same amount of money that they were. There's going to be a lot more unsheltered relatives because a lot of these homes will just shut shut down and um, ask you to leave. On May 11th, Navajo Police Department Deputy Chief Ron Silversmith posted two videos on the police department's Facebook page, cautioning Navajo Nation communities about various predatory rehab centres that were picking people up off and on the Navajo Nation land. 
The first video was in the Navajo language. That was followed by a video in English. We did an operation down in the Phoenix Valley to really... Deputy Chief Silversmith described in the video how many people were being enticed away from the Navajo Nation. Either voluntarily or have been uh, drugged or uh, coerced uh, by meals. Lured by, by food. Alcoholic uh, beverages. Alcohol, uh, sometimes alcohol laced with drugs, and the promise of treatment. They end up uh, subjecting themselves or going down to these rehabilitation centers down in the uh, Phoenix Valley. Well, Crystal, we heard how indigenous communities all across the West are being targeted by these predatory centers. But as we heard, you yourself, you're from the Navajo Nation. For people who aren't familiar with the Navajo Nation, what is it about it that makes people so extremely vulnerable to these predatory centers and these predatory practices? I know when I go back to the Navajo Nation, I can see it, you know, like there's a lot of people that walk everywhere, everywhere. We don't have a good transit system that runs from, you know, certain times every 15 minutes. I mean, you're looking at, I mean, we're our vulnerability. If you were to travel on the Navajo Nation, I guarantee you'll see an elder, you'll see a young woman, you'll see it young man, you'll see someone walking on the road, putting their hand out. And that's where these basically predatory treatment centers are taken advantage of. And they know it. They they know where to go. That was Crystal Ashkey with KSUT Tribal Radio. And we also heard from Chris Clements of KSJD. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Maeve Conran. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a chance of showers tonight with a low around 40 degrees. Thursday calls for a chance of showers and thunderstorms increasing throughout the day with periods of partial sun and a high near 60. Thursday night should see showers tapering off followed by partly cloudy skies in a low near 40. Friday calls for an 80% chance of showers and thunderstorms which are likely to continue into Friday night. The forecast high on Friday is near 60, with a low near 40 degrees. This has been the news for Wednesday, May 17th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hey Telluride, happy off-season! This is Megan Berry, Director of Rainbow Preschool and Rockies School Age Program. And I wanted to invite all of you to the Rainbow, Rockies, and Rascals Spring Fundraiser. We'll be having our event this year on Friday, May 19th at the Sheridan Opera House from 5.30 to 9.30 p.m. A $15 ticket will include an awesome silent and live auction with donations from your favorite local businesses, as well as enter you into a 2023-2024 Ski Pass Raffle. Also included in your ticket will be delicious food catered by Patrick Leguenz, live music with Sean Mahoney and Flatliner Express, free champagne while it lasts, and a super fun locals classic community party. Some auction items include a hot air balloon ride for two, a catered dinner for six with wine pairings, 
Soul Paddleboard, fine jewelry, festival passes, lodging, home goods, and much, much more. So please mark your calendars for May 19th to support the kids and come celebrate with us this offseason. Hope to see you there. Thanks, Kodo. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.